Welcome everyone to Hogan Lovell's ESG series. I'm Hillary Tompkins and I'm a partner in the Environment Group here in Washington, D.C. Today we have an amazing guest, my friend Bob Perciuseppe. Bob brings to us over 40 years of experience in the environmental sector in the public sector. So he's going to share with us today his views and thoughts on climate, the ESG movement, the Paris Agreement, and things that are happening with the Biden administration. So let me tell you a little bit about Bob before we get started. Bob just wrapped up an impressive tenure as president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, otherwise known as C2ES. Bob also is super cool because he was confirmed three times for service in the federal government in a variety of positions. First, under the Clinton administration, leading up EPA's air program and water program, and then in the Obama administration, where I got to work with Bob firsthand on a number of really cool issues. Bob has the great achievement of being the longest serving deputy for EPA. He served from 2009 to 2014, which is no small feat, I can tell you, because these public service jobs are tough. Uh, so that's super impressive. During his tenure at EPA, he worked on auto emission standards, increased protections for the nation's waters under the WOTUS rule, and also carbon emission standards for power plants. Before EPA, Bob was COO at the Audubon Society and started his career in good old Maryland. So Secretary of the Environment and also worked for the city of Baltimore on planning and budget issues. So welcome, Bob. It's great to be here with you, Hillary, and hello, everybody. So we're going to talk to a bunch of amazing lawyers, principally, is in our audience, but we want to hear like the non-lawyer side of things on these climate issues. And I know Bob's going to have a lot of good insights for us. So first, Bob, tell us about C2ES. What is this organization and what do you guys do? C2ES is a nonprofit organization, a um, independent nonprofit organization. One of the focus areas is working with businesses to get them more focused on climate issues and also supportive of climate policy. We also uh, work on the international front by convening countries around the implementation issues of the Paris Agreement. So it's a pretty broad span, but it's a pretty lean group of around 25 people. Wow. So only 25 people working on these global issues across the world and with many, many participants in corporate America, I would imagine. Uh, so tell us a bit about your interactions with the business community. One of our focuses is really to work with the business community and, you know, which is a simplistic term, obviously the business community is very diverse and we have a business council that we try to get as many sectors working on it as possible, from automobile to power companies to financial institutions to mineral extraction, all of those different kinds of manufacturing companies all working together on a, on a council trying to feel their way through how do we translate our own goals into policy that can help us uh, make a difference. And so, you know, there's been a tendency in the past to be defensive about policy or or regulations uh, 
or and what to do about climate. And I think what we're finding now is as more and more companies step out and say, we're going to make a commitment to get carbon neutral by the middle of the century or some other carbon or climate change commitment, they often quickly find that some federal policies and state policy at times can actually help achieve those goals. And so where does this synergy happen is really what we are, are trying to work on and, and, and build off of. You know, I've been watching uh, your organization grow and get some incredible participants in the Business Leadership Council. It does seem like there's a lot of enthusiasm in the private sector to sign on to the work that you're doing, kind of seeing that the markets are dictating some of these trends. Certainly institutional investors are now saying that ESG is really important to demonstrate that you're making gains in those areas. We've also seen some governmental policy shifts in that direction to try and provide some sideboards for the private sector. So tell us a bit about how you all are viewing these ESG trends, the, the issue of, you know, are corporations solely focused on making a profit or are they starting to consider other stakeholder interests? So what are you seeing out there? I think you hit the nail on the head with that last uh, statement. I, what, what you're seeing in the boardrooms as well as in the C-suite of major corporations, Fortune 500 or, or Standard & Poor 500 on a global scale, a growing interest, and you see this at the World Economic Forum, uh, a growing interest in looking broadly at stakeholders, not just shareholders. And, you know, there's a term of art that's been coined called stakeholder capitalism, where you look into who are the stakeholders of the corporation and how does the corporation relate to those stakeholders. I think what people are finding, and at least some of the some of the work that's been ongoing shows that the more you think broadly about the stakeholders, the better off the shareholders will be, particularly when you're looking at the longer term point of view as opposed to the next quarter profit report. And, and here's where you see this starting to happen. When you start to get consumers interested, supply chains interested, uh, employees interested, investors interested, and demanding that companies have some view of how they're going to be sustainable over the next 10, 20 years, this is a different mindset and one that really requires the long-term look at the, for the shareholder as well as how all these other stockholders, stakeholders, I'm sorry, are involved. And, and you even see this in competition for talent. A couple of years ago, the Yale Center for Business and the Environment did a survey of 3,600 MBA graduates across the world. And what they found is a significant, you know, more, a majority of those graduates were interested in working for a company that was proactive on climate change. And in addition to that, they wanted to work for a company that saw that the company could take a leadership role in this. So this is, this is something that's really starting to affect how do we attract the, the talent as well. So we're, this is what we're starting to see. Uh, ESG uh, is evolving faster than you would think. And these conversations that are happening in the C-suite are, are, are not inconsequential. Yeah. Yeah. And that's incredible to hear that the next generation of workers and leadership is going to be demanding that these issues are addressed in a forward manner, forward thinking manner. 
And it does get to competition. Like you want the best and brightest working with you in your company. Uh, and if you're not adopting policies that are in sync with their mindset, you're going to lose that competition. So that's a great example of how it really can affect your bottom line in a new way that I don't think folks have been thinking about up till now. So tell us a bit about, you know, you, you've had a major stints in Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts about kind of what we're likely to see out of the current Biden administrations in, in terms of climate, you know, new regulations, uh, new policies, that sort, sort of thing. If folks haven't read the mm-hmm. president's executive order, uh, again, I want to be clear, executive orders are not legislation, they're not regulations, they're simply instructions from the president, the boss of the right. federal workforce, on telling the federal workforce what to do. I know there's been a lot of controversy about executive orders and whether it's a conservative president or, right. or a progressive president. The, the key to the executive order is that only can be telling the employees what to do. Mm-hmm. So it's instructing, for instance, the whole government approach, which is what the Biden administration has taken on. So it instructs different parts of the government to start taking action. So, you know, whether it's procurement, that the government would buy lower carbon goods and cement or Mm -hmm. or steel or or just products, infrastructure investments. And we hear a lot about infrastructure bills in Congress, but, you know, the federal government. And if I go talk to the Appropriations Committee in the House or or the Senate, they can say, yeah, yeah, those people are all working on infrastructure, but we have to do a budget every year and it's got hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in it. So, you yeah. know, so how do you steer all that? How do you right. steer, all, steer all that? Uh, plus whatever might come from an instru- you know, a boost of additional spending, uh, which is, I think, needed in many areas like water and highways and broadband and transmission lines mm-hmm. and charging stations, you can find that some of this infrastructure can be geared toward being either more climate resilient, but also helping implement some of the climate programs or helping companies implement their climate programs. If the, if the automobile industry wants to be selling only electric cars by 2035, they got to have charging stations. So if, if the federal government can help stimulate that, that's going to be a, a symbiotic relationship between the federal government and the automobile industry, and the power sector has to provide the electricity to those charging right. stations. You're going, to see, you're going to see more thinking about financial risk. What are uh, the Security Exchange Commission and others will be looking at and probably producing regulatory approaches? And the opportunity here with the SEC, given all the different people out there trying to get you to report on climate risk or climate action, to maybe get it organized in a way that it becomes more, I, I hate to use the word standardized, but at least mm-hmm. uh, at least an accepted level of practice on how do you, what is the scenario we're looking at into the future here? and Or what are the multiple scenarios that we're looking at? So there's a lot of opportunity there. And the last thing I'll mention, you know, in the whole government approach is there will be, you know, regulations, uh, you right. know, to reduce, you know, I, you mentioned in my introduction, we worked on automobile standards and power plant standards. And what you're seeing now, 10 years later, almost, the automobile industry, once again, working with the administration to support, you know, reduced greenhouse gas emissions from fleets of cars sold each year. And you're starting to see the power industry coalesce around 
trying to get to near zero in in emissions from the power sector, which is a central cog in the whole mix sometime in the 2030s. So uh, people are quibbling over what date and they're arguing, mm-hmm. you know, talking about it. But I've been involved with many discussions with power industry CEOs over the last year and a half or so about what is the approach to get to that net zero. And you find like the Edison Electric Institute, the main, you know, sort of trade group, if you will, for the, the investor-owned power industry, actually publicly adopting the fact that the power industry needs to get to zero. Mm-hmm. We know a lot, going back to my other comment about used to think about, you know, policy in the defensive way. Here you've got a major uh, industry actually publicly saying, look, we know we got where we got to go. You don't need us to tell us anymore. We have to reduce our emissions. We're ready to do it. Now, what can we do together to get there? So I right. think that that opportunity is the big one for both the industry and the business sector to to work with the administration because there there is no silver bullet. Let's just do this and we'll solve a climate problem. It's going to require all those different things, infrastructure investments, looking at the financial institutions, looking at uh, you know some of the, the environmental and emissions reduction goals, and actually also the resilience of, of our communities, which obviously are already being impacted. Yeah, and that just shows you the complexity and multi-layered approach to how we're going to tackle these challenges. And I think from a public policy perspective, um, having been in the government, I think it's my sense that the market is moving in a certain direction there are influences in that market that is forcing that change, but it's also important that industry engages with the government on what, what kind of regulations are going to make sense and can last, have lasting change. Because as you know, Bob, you know, a new administration comes in, changes the rules of the game and the playbook, and then another administration comes in and changes it. So are you hoping and and thinking and seeing possibly some sustainability in these policy changes where we're not going to have these wide swings back and forth if we could avoid it. And and if anything, I think maybe what you're getting at is now's the opportunity to try and set some things in stone to avoid that pendulum swing. I I think now's the time to do that. And and, um, I think that um, developing some policies that have the the federal government stepping up, uh, you know, both financially, uh, you know, with let's say infrastructure and flexible regulations that have market-based components to them, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if there is a change to somebody who's less interested in dealing with climate change, you know, the business sector and the the business community can say, look, we're we're on this path. In fact, they kept saying that all through the last four years. Mm. (laughs) And they kept making more and more commitments, even with an administration that was not paying any attention in any Mm -hmm. strong way to climate change. So um, I think if these things get put in place and the, and the, you know, our economy says, leave it alone, we need this certainty to proceed. um, I I think there's a strong chance that even if somebody has a tendency to want to ignore it, um, that, that it'll still be sustained. Um, So, or at least, you know, modified, you know, uh, so I think I feel I feel now's the time to do this, and I know that this is hard. Um, every, you know, businesses want to see some kind of certainty, and they want to see a path forward. But you know, there's going to be sacrifices here. There's going to be mm-hmm. costs, and there's going to be like who's who's 
who's winning and who's losing around people always think of things this way. And, and, the, and the question really has to be, where can the compromises be made? And right now it's very hard to see those compromises being mm-hmm. made between the political parties. But I think that it's really important for uh, the business community to try to find those compromises with uh, the administration and whoever in Congress is willing to, to work with them and to be proactive as opposed right. to just definitely opposed. that. And I mean, I, that's, I, yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, that's, I, I got to jump in here because I think that's what I found so helpful when I was uh, at the interior department. And I'm sure you could say the same at APA when uh, the business community would come in with a solution and say, we know these are the laws you have to deal with. We know that um, you're looking at amending a regulation but here are some concrete ways we can address what you want to address, but in a way that's reasonable and workable for us. And, and those moments were really, really um, invaluable uh, during, during, uh, for, a, for a policy decision maker. Yeah. I, I think there's lessons to be learned about what happened in the last administration. Uh, you know, I think businesses started off uh, thinking, well, look, we can make some adjustments here, maybe to some of the stuff that was done mm-hmm. in Obama. And then what they found is the administration went way too far. In fact, in the power industry, uh, you had, for instance, people say, why are you doing something with the mercury standards? Because we've already implemented it. Right, you know, right, why, right. Yeah. Why, are you, why are you changing it? And of course, there's a big esoteric reason why related to cost benefit analysis and Supreme mm-hmm. Court and everything. But the bottom line is it was all gratuitous. And, and, and it didn't really have any practical impact on the ground. So, you know, I, I, I think um, that's something to remember that, you know, you went through this whole process goes on. It was un- unnecessary. Uh, Distraction. I guess in football, since football season started last weekend, this past weekend, it was unnecessary roughness. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is my, my view. I love I love that reference, and I was going to say also a lot of unnecessary litigation. I, there was just so much litigation yeah, yeah. with the flip flopping of the yeah. regulations, and um, so there's got to be some right. um, some right. hopefully right. some meeting of no, the minds. Right, it yeah. went too far. So I think now yeah. now is the time to try to get it recalibrated so that it's beneficial to both to and both find uh, some the business some touchdowns. As well Can as I say find some. Yeah, can yeah. I say find some touchdowns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay, yeah, good. Field goals, touchdowns, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so um, I, I, switching I to Congress, <laughs> yes, yeah, switching to Congress then, which is in the 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 epicenter, the the amphitheater of uh, political debate. You know, we hear things about a clean energy standard. Um, obviously, we talked about the infrastructure bill and budget reconciliation is going on. What are your thoughts about? what might come out of Congress? Easy question. Well, yeah, I, I, I'll break it into three things here. There, there, some little things will happen, you know, like maybe a tax extender for, you know, uh, uh, renewable energy or for carbon capture technologies or, you know, things uh, or, you know, some uh, bill to add, uh, that pushes the Department of Agriculture to, to come up with uh, approaches for dealing with measuring the carbon captured in agriculture and soil, you know, putting in a place, a, a certification program or some kind. I mean, you'll see those little things that have, some, you know, like getting more trees planted. These things have 
bipartisan support and they'll get hooked on here or there to different things. Then you have the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is still floating around. It's, uh, you know, it's been positively moved, uh, you know, in a number of places, the Senate and, and, and in the House. You know, the question is just bringing that together and getting it, getting it to the president. Uh, you know, it's, it, that's still in process, but I'm guessing that this will happen, although, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get people pissed off enough that they don't, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to cooperate anymore. But, and nonetheless, they, that seems to be moving forward. And then there's some of the bigger ticket items, you know, bigger investments in climate related infrastructure, some congressionally mandated or congressionally framed programs, like you mentioned, the clean energy standard. Mm -hmm. I, I know that people are still talking about potential of carbon taxes, uh, which a lot of people support, uh, but which is very politically radioactive for mm -hmm. many members of Congress. So I think, you know, the default setting may be uh, trying to get some kind of clean energy standard. Uh, the power industry uh, that would be most affected is in favor of some kind of a clean energy standard. And that gets us to how would they do this? And since you're not going to get bipartisan support for these kinds of climate, these heavier duty right. climate policies, it's going to have to happen through reconciliation. And I'm not going to do a tutorial on reconciliation, but leave it to be said, you only need 51 votes to get a reconciliation bill passed. And this has been done in the past for the Affordable Care Act and the tax cuts, uh, the, 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 uh, the corporate mm -hmm. tax rate cuts that were done. And I want to point out that both of those have been kind of durable. I know that right. I'm often out there with others saying it's not going to be durable if it isn't bipartisan. Well, people have tried like heck for many years to kill the Affordable Care Act. They certainly have diminished it, but it's still there and has wide public support. Corporate income tax cuts from 35% to 21%, which was a pretty 40% cut in the corporate income mm -hmm. tax. Even efforts to bring it back a little bit to offset some of these costs of these infrastructure projects, you know, is, re is getting re stiff resistance and it's never going to go back to 35%. So mm -hmm. are those policies durable? I, I think an argument could be made. Yeah, they probably are if they have public support or stakeholder support, in this case, the business community. So right. If climate change action is pretty popular in the American public's mind, it's not at the top of their list of things to deal with. But 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 if you ask them, they're they're supportive of doing it. So and so then the power industry is supportive of some kind of clean energy standard. Problem with the clean energy standard, you can't really do it the way it's traditionally thought of through reconciliation, given the the, the rules. The, yeah, uh, the rules. Uh, you know, the, you know, some of them are named after a great senator from West Virginia, the bird rule, right. but um, there's a need for some revenue aspects of it. So people have modified the clean energy standard to what's called the clean energy payment program. Mm -hmm. And here you still set an annual goal of reduced emissions from, in this case, the power sector, the clean energy, or a certain amount of clean energy that needs to be produced. And what would happen is if, if you're a power company and you you produce more uh, clean energy than the, than the glide path has, you'll get paid, a, right. a, a, you'll get a payment from the federal government. You know, and I think the Democrats' proposal last week, I think it had $150 billion in, the, in it to, to do the, make these payments. On the other side of the coin, if you fail to meet the glide path in terms of the percentage of your electricity that is clean, 
you have to pay. Right. So it and becomes a financial instrument, which then ma- yes. which then makes it eligible uh, and uh, under the likely review of the parliamentarian in the Senate. So, but it, the bottom line is the same thing. Every year you have to have more clean energy and, yes. and that's defined. And if you beat it, you get a payment. If you miss it, you, you have to pay. So that's the, right. that's the difference between the, between the two. Whereas in the other one, in a clean energy standard, if you beat it, you have a credit that you can sell to some other company. Here, that so there is just transactions between the sources as opposed to the federal government having a financial interest in both collecting payments or making payments, and that makes it eligible for reconciliation. Yeah, you've got to get but that. That's as short as the explanation yeah. of, I can make. Oh, I know that. it, and it's all to fit into the reconciliation rules and and to have it be look like a grant program yeah. so they can get it in. So it'll be interesting it, to see what, what happens. It also, it also has huge financial incentives. So it has a market component to it, uh, which I think is not yeah. an unhealthy thing. So I, 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 that's sort of what's playing out right now. But again, yes. you, you can all read about the debates, uh, trying to align, you know, 50 uh, Democratic votes to get Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin to agree Manchin on, on the same page, uh, you know, on the, on, the, <laughs> on the on the two spectrums there is is almost bipartisan in a way, but uh, in and of itself, uh, yes, maybe Joe yeah. will invite Bernie to his boat and they can they can figure it out on the on the Potomac or something. <laughs> so shifting to the global stage, Paris Agreement would love to hear your your thoughts on the Paris Agreement. And there's been a lot of kind of commentary about how there's no enforceable provisions in the Paris Agreement. So, you know, how are we going to hold any countries, you know, commitments uh, to ensure that that they're honoring them? So what are your thoughts on that? You know, we've gone around and around all the way back 20 years ago to the Rio uh, convention that um, was ratified by the United States Senate and of which uh, uh, Bill Riley, working for President H.W. Oh, yeah. Bush, was the lead of the delegation. And that was the, the Rio Convention. And that put in place the the, the uh, climate change uh, program for the world. And since then, it's been trying to find a formula where it could get all the countries to work together. And it was the Kyoto Protocol. Then it was, uh, you know, the Another one, and and slowly but surely, the Paris Agreement became the the compromise between a top-down, here's what everybody has to do, which you couldn't get everybody to agree to, or a completely generic bottom-up, do what you will. This is sort of a hybrid. And what it has is mandatory reporting requirements and 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 a a five-year period of developing uh, country-level commitments that they within the sovereignty of each country and there's 195 countries involved here and That's those amazing. countries yeah. pick are are supposed are supposed to uh, you know every 5 years and this is coming up in Glasgow uh later this year uh every 5 years will re up their um commitments whereas the United States in its first round of nationally determined contributions said they would do 20 five to 26 percent. I can't remember the exact number, but it was in that range. Whereas now uh, President Biden has and John and, and his envoy, Kerry, John Kerry, has said we're going to do 50 percent by 2030. 
And so some of these policies we were just talking about need to be in place for the United States to achieve that kind of commitment. They can make the commitment, but to achieve it. Now, this allows each country to do this, but everybody's got a report. And that's what we're going to hear. We'll be hearing about as we get into Glasgow. And I want to point out, and I do this to many of my friends who have those con- those kinds of, uh, of of criticisms about it's not mandatory. Mm-hmm. And I say, look, we're talking about sovereign nations here, and we're talking about you know diplomacy. Let's say we had mandatory requirements, and you know, and we differentiated them in some rational way that somehow all 195 countries agreed to, and. And we allocated a reduction to each one. And and Vietnam didn't make its, I'm not picking on Vietnam here. I'm just using it as an yes, example. completely. And yeah. they didn't, they don't make their commitment. So if it's a top down. So what is the global community going to do? Are they going to sanction Vietnam and make it harder for them to meet the commitments? Or are they going to try to help Vietnam make, make its commitments mm-hmm. or use diplomacy to see if they can work? And the same thing's going to happen now. If if somebody puts out their nationally determined contribution, which is supposed to get more stringent each time, every five years, and they can't make it, you know, the global community, then, you know, the diplomacy is what's going to work here. And, and so to the extent that there are leaders like the United States, you know, like Europe, and I'm going to say like China, that can push, you know, either the developing world or the developed world forward you know, you have right. an opportunity here to make make progress. To to think you can do something different on an international scale with 195 sovereign nations, I, I think might I mean might be a little bit naive. Yeah, and it'd so be really tricky said, to enforce. That's right. I I mean realistically. However, let me say with what I just said in place. The rule book, it took a couple of years to get the rule book on how to do the reporting and the transparency and everything else. Uh, there's supposed to be a global stock take. Uh, how are we doing? And I think the global stock take is going to show, and there's many preliminary reports to show this, is we're falling short of even the modest nationally determined contributions people made at the beginning in Paris in 2015. And 15, we've been yeah. delayed a year because of COVID. You know, so we're now six years into it. And I think we're going to find the world's has not been able to achieve what it set out to do five years ago. So the Glasgow uh, Conference of Parties coming up is going to be a big reckoning, you know, about this. And, uh, you know, another thing that's going to, we're going to see probably coming out of Glasgow is a firmer commitment of a smaller subset of countries to looking at some global market mechanisms, whether they, you know, revolve around some kind of trading program or, or border mm-hmm. adjustment program, you're going to see uh, people in the di- diplomatic world call these carbon clubs, where you get a club of comp- countries that will start to do something that eventually might be able to be adopted globally. So again, people are going to have to re-up their commitments. Uh, everybody expects that those will be more ambitious. And uh, and then there's going to have to be a reckoning on how we help everybody start to implement these yeah, commitments. And it, so it sounds- if you withdraw from the diplomatic process, uh, or if you have no leadership in the diplomatic process, it's hard to see how it'll work globally. And the United States, for better or worse, uh, and no matter how many people are pissed off at us for one reason or another around the world, uh, still wields a lot of moral authority and ability to pull diplomatic strings to, you know, to, to make progress on these matters. 
Yes, and it seems like they're also looking at carrots, <laughs> incentivizers, and a little bit yeah. of peer pressure well, uh, to get people to stay at the table uh, because doing yeah. uh, some kind of adverse enforcement action just would be really difficult to yeah. configure and, and implement. So I'll just say one last thing. Nobody, yeah, the only country to ever withdraw from Paris was the United States. And, and the United States actually <laughs> yeah. tried to get other countries to withdraw with them, but nobody would. Nobody would. So yeah. I, I think that says, that says something. Anyway, go yeah, to the next Yeah, great question. point. Very interesting. So uh, last question to wrap us up. Uh, what advice do you have for all the lawyers out there about what they should be doing with their clients on these issues? What should they, they be telling them? Well, you know, there's a couple of things. I mean, if you can read the tea leaves of what we just talked about, I mean, companies of any consequence really need to be thinking, obviously, of their near-term profits because they're in, you know, some of them are in debt. They, have, they do have shareholders and we can't ignore that. But they have to start tempering that with that longer term view, looking out, let's say, 20 years in the future, 10 to 20 to maybe even 30, which is the middle of the century. And what kind of company do they think they're going to have then? What, what is their sustainability model going forward mm -hmm. and how do they start doing it? And one of the, the old adages, you, you, if you don't measure it, you don't manage it. You know, so understanding mm -hmm. what your carbon footprint is. Uh, making some commitments that are not obviously binding in law, but that you can help to organize in the in the company. I mean, we've done studies at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions on internal carbon pricing that a lot of companies have done. You take somebody like, again, I hate to pick on particular companies here. I'm not picking on them. I'm just going to mention them. Somebody like Microsoft, who has an internal price on carbon. So it, it's on everybody's internal balance mm -hmm. sheets there. And so- you know, and there's other approaches to do it. And you, you go to our website and we've done a report on how companies do this. But there are many different things companies can be doing to internalize the management of thinking about a lower and lower carbon future. And I think, you know, in the opportunities I've had to be asked to come and talk to boards of directors of major American companies, I basically have put them on that kind of path. I mean, I've suggested that they be on that path. I mean, I have no authority to put them on any path, but, but, but that they really need to think about how their company is going to transform or adopt to a lower carbon future. And, and what, what is the nature of how their business may have to change or adjust to, to accommodate that. But equally important is what are the opportunities there that the business has? What could they where can they um, really push new markets or new ideas or new services that maybe they hadn't done in the past or they can build on their existing work? So there's a lot of opportunity there, including looking up and down uh, supply chains, because the risk on the other side, if, if this thing continues to go as it is, is those supply chains are going to get disrupted. Their customers are going to be more impacted right. and maybe not able to buy their products. You know, their competitors may have taken those steps and be able to outcompete them. So this is not a this is not an this is not an academic exercise because these impacts are starting to happen, and and the world will eventually have to try to deal with it. Um, so you're going to have that two side, you know, angle three sides angle, you know, triangle here, you know 
what what should I be doing to mitigate? How do I prepare for the impacts? And you know, what can I do to uh, make my company more competitive in that kind of an environment? So the idea that I put out earlier, where if you're like a power company in an automobile industry and you see your future as providing electricity for transportation, that's your growth market, and you and your automobile industry, you see the way you're going to get to zero is to have electric vehicles in your showrooms and not internal combustion engines. What they both need are charging stations or the ability to build charging stations to provide the consumer confidence for that to happen. Getting the charging stations out there, getting the infrastructure in place to put that kind of electricity out there, which is going to be a lot, especially for the fast chargers, is going to require public policy and public spending. Mm -hmm. And so here's an opportunity for that, that that partnership between the private sector, which knows they need to do something, and the public sector, which has sees it as the public good that needs to happen. How do you make these things work together? And so real opportunities there, I think, for a different way for the business community and corporate America to think about its relationship with the federal government. And I, I, that's a scary thing for anybody to say, but nonetheless, um, there's always been this symbiotic relationship. We couldn't ship goods around the country today if we didn't have the interstate highway. And, you know, before that, the railroads. And so to assume that the federal government was not in, if the federal, to assume the federal government had nothing to do with that would be uh, also naive. The federal government had a lot to do with that. And uh, the same thing could be said about broadband. If you want to have, you know, a modern factory in a rural area, modern factories, everything is connected to the internet, you know, and so you need broadband. So I'll leave it at that. Real opportunity here, I think, for for that kind of future. So lots of work for lawyers. Yeah, and for lawyers as well to do all kinds of important work um, on the regulatory front, on the contractual front, uh, anticipating and evaluating risk and how to minimize that risk. And providing high value uh, advice to their clients uh, that uh, will help their clients survive and thrive you know, going forward. Yes. And anticipating these changes that are on the horizon, I think is at the heart of our discussion, uh, that there's a lot coming. And as a counsel to these companies, it's important to kind of see what's coming down the road and anticipating those, those impacts. Um, well, great to have this conversation with you, Bob. I've really enjoyed it. I know our audience has as well, and hopefully maybe you will be going to Glasgow in Scotland, maybe virtually or in person. Uh, and then maybe we could have a chat after after that event and kind of see what what's evolves in that discussion in Scotland. Yep. Well, next up is in September is the United Nations General Assembly here in New York, and um, and around that, you know, what's called Climate Week, and there'll be a mix of activities and pushing. You know, to uh, to see where countries are starting to fall out heading into Glasgow. So the whole fall here um, is really uh, uh, going to be an important time. So yeah, I'll be happy to report on all that uh, later oh, yes. on in the, in the year. Excellent. Would love to have you back for a chat. So thanks so much, Bob. And thank you all for joining us for our ESG series here at Hogan Levels. Have a great day.